Welcome to a podcast of a sermon delivered at the Unitarian Society of Ridgewood in New Jersey. Our congregation is a place where you will find inspiration in the richness of diverse beliefs and the power of community. Detailed information about the Unitarian Society of Ridgewood is available on our website, uuridgewood.org. And now if you'll please join in the words for lighting the chalice, they're printed in your order of service and also projected. We light this chalice. Now I'll invite you to take a deep breath and to listen. The world feels slow this morning, snow still covering the ground, the quiet lingering. Settle yourself for a time of reflection and listen as this sound pierces the quiet, rising up and then fading back. A reminder of all the ways that we rise and fall, of all the ways nature rushes in and slowly recedes, of all the ways our lives ebb and flow. Breathe and listen. Side by side we sit for this hour. Some arrive with the serenity of newly fallen snow, calm and quiet. Some arrive with all the uncertainty and fury of a blizzard struggling. Each of us, we arrive here hurt, happy, questioning, wondering, challenged, hopeful. Maybe you come this morning wrestling with a moral question how to live your deepest beliefs. Maybe you come excited about new opportunities that have come your way, hopeful that this year will bring the magic you seek. Maybe you come this morning so tired, needing respite from the noise and chaos that seems relentless beyond these walls. However you arrive, whatever you bring, you are welcome here in this home. Here, Mistakes can be made and forgiveness offered. Here, questions can be asked and left to linger without answer. Here, belief and uncertainty can coexist in the search for understanding. Here, whatever you bring can be held by a community of care. For over a century, here, people have sat side by side 
witnessing to each other's complex lives, building community, creating a home, growing love, coming and going as their life's journeys call them on. Time after time, people have constituted this community, bringing all that they are. And this beloved community can hold it all, can hold you. There's nothing you need to be here. Just be yourself. Just you is enough. You don't need to be perfect. You don't need to be right. You don't need to have the answers. Just you. Mind open to new thoughts and ideas, spirit open to the change life might bring, heart open to those who sit beside you. However you arrive, welcome to this hour of community, of spirit, of heart and mind, and of love. Every Sunday that we gather together in this community, we take time for reflection and quiet, for meditation and prayer. This morning, as we move into that time together, as you breathe and settle your bodies, I want to offer you a passage that is often, was often quoted by Martin Luther King Jr. Um, from the book of Isaiah. It reads, A voice cries out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all people shall see it together. So take a deep breath. Here in this room, in this beloved community, there are those of us who believe in God and those who do not. But all of us know that we live in a world of valleys and mountains of uneven ground and rough places. We live in a world of inequality and injustice. And yet we need not. Take a deep breath. We can dream a world where valleys are lifted up and hills made low. We can dream a world where love reigns, where every voice is lifted up in song, where every person knows what it is to be free, where each of us can exist proud, unafraid, and filled with peace. We can dream a world of equality and justice, of righteousness and glory, where what motivates our words is compassion and what guides our actions is gentleness. We can dream a world where love reigns. This morning, as we move into quiet, we hold space for those suffering directly from inequality and injustice. <coughs> We hold space for all of us who are complicit in creating a world that allows for inequality and injustice. And we hold space for those who dedicate their lives to working for peace and equality. Let your own hearts, minds, and spirits silently call out their most fervent hopes 
as we sit together in the quiet. May we have the strength to live our own lives true to the dream we hold for the future. May we have the wisdom to check our actions, to recognize when intentionally or not, we are acting contrary to our ideals. And may we have the fortitude to stay committed to our dream, committed to living lives of love. So may it be. For nearly my entire life, the third Monday of January has been Martin Luther King Jr. Day. The day marks the Reverend Dr. King's birthday. Though signed into law in 1983 and first observed in 1986, it actually wasn't until 2000 that all 50 states observed the holiday as it was intended to be observed. So with the proper name and with actual days off. Of course, we mark this day because King was a giant among those who worked and died for the civil rights movement. His eloquence and commitment, his faith and his willingness to risk give him his rightful place among American heroes. And it feels right that a day should be given to honor his life and his work. But so often we take this day to celebrate how far we've come. We take it to celebrate the convenient parts of King's message. 
We take it as a time to say, he did a great job. Things are doing better. What a great vision of human equality he cast for us all. And for years, this has been the case in Unitarian Universalist congregations as well. And I'm as guilty as anyone. I've made that mistake, preaching the I have a dream speech and focusing on the parts of King's message that feel comfortable. But last year, I shared with you a piece by Kim Hampton, who is a consultant and researcher who looks at the intersections of race and religion. In that piece, Hampton asks that on King Day, folks not preach King unless they are willing to preach about sin, about anti-materialism, about his pacifism, not just about the strides he helped this country make toward overcoming racial inequality. In part, the call comes because King was a complex man whose vision for America was so much more than the I Have a Dream speech. And in part, the call comes because to refuse to wrestle with the more challenging parts of King's message is to deny his full purpose. And in part, the call comes because this day can too often be a way of letting us all and our nation off the hook. The Reverend Dr. King was, above all, a minister, a reverend, called to preach and live in the ways of the gospel and to lead others to a life of compassion. You can hear it if you listen to him speak. He goes back often to scripture. He talks about the promised land, about the valleys being lifted up and the mountains and hills made low. His vision of beloved community is one born of the liberating Jesus he knew from his deep faith, a faith that of course included moments of doubt and humility. His committed faith meant that King did indeed speak in terms of sin, and his considered life meant that he thought through the ramifications all the way across the board of his values. He was able to look around at American culture and to offer a faith-filled analysis that said, America has its share of sins. Not just the inheritance of racism based in slavery and the denial of full personhood to whole groups, but also inherited sins of exceptionalism, materialism, and warmongering. His values, the lessons he learned through his faith, meant that the Reverend Dr. King was anti-war, anti-materialism, and anti-consumerism. So while his most famous speech paints a picture of equality and integration that we love to lift up today, despite the fact that in many cities and states our schools are as segregated as they were before integration, other speeches of his take to task American culture, the American way of life, and call for a total revolution. Among those hard-hitting works is the speech titled Beyond Vietnam, given in Riverside Church in New York City on April 4, 1967. In that speech, King outlines why he is against the war in Vietnam. Quote, since I am a preacher by calling, I suppose it is not surprising that I have seven major reasons for bringing Vietnam into the field of my moral vision. There is at the outset a very obvious and almost facile connection between the war in Vietnam and the struggle I and others have been waging in America. A few years ago, there was a shining moment in that struggle. It seemed as if there was a real promise of hope for the poor, both black and white, through the poverty program. There were experiments, hopes, new beginnings. Then came the buildup in Vietnam, and I watched this program broken and eviscerated as if it were some idle political plaything in a society gone mad on war. 
and I knew that America would never invest the necessary funds or energies in rehabilitation of its poor so long as adventures like Vietnam continued to draw men and skills and money like some demonic destructive suction tube. So I was increasingly compelled to see the war as an enemy of the poor and to attack it as such. End quote. The war, King said, sent, quote, Black young men who had been crippled by our society 8,000 miles away to guarantee liberties in Southeast Asia, which they had not found in Southwest Georgia and East Harlem. So we have been repeatedly faced with the cruel irony of watching Negro and white boys on TV screens as they will and die together for a nation that has been unable to seat them together in the same schools. End quote. That's the king that Hampton asks us to preach the truth-telling king of the anti-war movement. He goes on to elaborate more reasons, but he also says something that struck me in particular this year as I was considering today's sermon. He says, Over the past two years, I have moved to break the betrayal of my own silences and to speak from the burnings of my own heart. King acknowledges in this speech that his silence on the question of the war in Vietnam was a betrayal a silencing of his own heart. With that short line, he offers a window into his own humility. I always think of the story of Dr. King sitting at his table after receiving yet another middle-of-the-night death threat. He's drinking his tea and asking himself and his God if the cost is too high, if the work is too much, if he's making the right choice. King understood what it was to doubt and to question, to be humble before his vision of the divine and humble before the calling that took him on his journey to justice. He understood that it meant something significant to query his own convictions. And he understood, as evidenced by his speech on Vietnam, what it meant to know when he had misstepped and to own it in front of others. He understood that humility can coexist with strength and power, ferocity, conviction, and commitment. And that's the king that Hampton asks us to preach, the king who doubted, the king who wasn't always right, the king who could be humble even as he preached the truth. I read a piece this week about humility by Brian Resnick. It was titled, Intellectual Humility, the Importance of Knowing You Might Be Wrong. In it, the author describes a project started by the social scientist Julia Rohrer. The project, created out of the Max Planck Institute for Human Development, is, quote, designed to be an academic safe space for researchers to declare for all to see that they no longer believe in the accuracy of one of their previous findings. So the idea is that we are not taught well how to admit when we are wrong. We're not given the tools to say, I made a mistake or new information has rendered my old position insupportable. We just don't do it well. So the object of this academic space is to make it okay for scientists to admit mistakes and not suffer consequences. And more broadly, the object is to help all of us understand better this concept of intellectual humility that Resnick defines as the characteristic that allows for admission of wrongness. So Rohrer's project is to help the scientific community lead the way so that the rest of us might follow and be more willing to concede when we are wrong or when a cherished worldview gets debunked. <laughs> 
Resnick identifies three challenges that we have to overcome in order to embrace intellectual humility more fully in our modern world. First, we have to get more comfortable with the idea that each and every one of us has what he calls cognitive blind spots. Second, we have to remember that we are not going to be punished for admitting that we were wrong, and we have to collectively celebrate admissions of wrongness. And third, we have to understand that intellectual humility, like everything else that humans do, will never be done flawlessly. We'll get that wrong too. But intellectual humility, he argues, is worth pushing through all of these challenges. And Resnick is careful to explain that it isn't the colloquial understanding we have of the word humility. He writes, Instead, it's a method of thinking. It's about entertaining the possibility that you may be wrong and being open to learning from the experience of others. Intellectual humility is about being actively curious about your blind spots. One illustration is in the ideal of the scientific method where a scientist actively works against her own hypothesis, attempting to rule out any other alternative explanations for a phenomenon before settling on a conclusion. It's about asking, what am I missing here? It doesn't require a high IQ or a particular skill set. It does, however, require making a habit of thinking about your limits, which can be painful. We live in a world where technology enables falsehoods regularly. We also live in a world where calls to justice ask us to rethink our long-held beliefs about race relations, about capitalism, and more. The value of intellectual humility is that, studies show, those who are intellectually humble are more concerned with the veracity of the things that they hear and read. They're also open to listening to opinions that differ from theirs. They're better able to grasp and integrate new information that doesn't just confirm their views. They care more about actual evidence, even if it doesn't support their position. People who have intellectual humility can admit they are proven wrong, but more than that, they regularly entertain the notion that they might be. And that's no small thing in our contemporary culture. Resnick notes that our society rewards confidence and bluster, not truthfulness. And that the problem with arrogance, he says, is that the truth always catches up. We may value bluster, but the truth comes out. And actually, that's a good thing, because Resnick points out that the ability to admit that we're wrong helps us to actually get closer to being right. If we can cultivate a sense of humility around our worldview and our cherished beliefs, we can open to them being modified and we can come individually and collectively closer to the actual truth. And we need the truth now. Intellectual humility is called for now more than ever because the stakes are high across the board as we talked about last week. And intellectual humility can open doors for actual change. If one refuses to allow for the possibility that one is wrong, then one will never grow in mind or spirit. We have to be willing to have our beliefs and convictions challenged, and we have to be able to listen, really listen, to other points of view. But of course, as Resnick points out, there is a balance between conviction and humility. Right now, we have an excess of conviction and not enough humility. 
Resnick writes, though, that to be intellectually humble doesn't mean giving up on the ideas we love and believe in. It just means we need to be thoughtful in choosing our convictions, be open to adjusting them, seek out our flaws, and never stop being curious about why we believe what we believe. But he knows it isn't easy. Like, he's clear about that. This is not easy work. And King knew it wasn't easy. In that speech on Vietnam, he said, Some of us who have already begun to break the silence of the night have found that the calling to speak is often a vocation of agony. But we must speak. We must speak with all the humility that is appropriate to our limited vision, but we must speak. King acknowledged the line between conviction and humility and the agony that sometimes comes with having to stand behind a conviction and be open to our own limitations. That's the inconvenient King Hampton wants us to preach about. The one who also asked often more of folks than they wanted to give. And it struck me as I reread King's works and this piece on intellectual humility that one of the places that we as a nation, and especially those of us who are white, have failed to have the necessary balance of humility is around the question of our inherited racism. We have always failed to have that balance in this country. We've spoken together in here about the culture of white supremacy that pervades America, about the privileges that extend to those with white skin even now, about the difference between systemic racism and individual racism, about what it might look like to be an ally. Today, this year, contemplating where we have progressed and where we are still so far behind, I want to suggest to you that humility might help us get a little further along. Humility meaning a willingness to accept that our worldview isn't always right. A willingness to accept that our limited vision means we don't understand everything and others have truths to tell us. A willingness to interrogate our positions when asked to, and to respond with the possibility that we might be wrong even if it hurts to admit it. A willingness to be open to our own mistakes and wrongdoings. And I want to suggest to you that those of us who are white need to let go of some of our deeply entrenched conviction that we are always right. A conviction that, by the way, is itself a product of white supremacist culture. The lack of humility, lack of openness, it's all part of our inherited oppressive culture that rewards blustery self-assuredness and denigrates openness and humility. Many of us, and I include myself in all of these many of us's, many of us were taught that the civil rights movement solved race relations in this country. Many of us were taught that segregation worked, or integration worked. Many of us were taught that the right way to end prejudice is simply to not see color. Many of us were taught that slavery ended long ago. Many of us were taught that if our families didn't own slaves, then we bore no responsibility. Many of us were taught that enough time has gone by and everything is equal now. Many of us were taught that all we needed to do was not be personally actively racist and then we were okay. Many of us were taught that King was only about a nonviolent end to segregation. Many of us have held these and other deep convictions about racism and oppression in this country. And many of us dig in when we hear anything that contradicts them. Many of us get defensive or angry at the suggestion that we have any responsibility to bear for the way race and privilege operate in this country. 
We must hold these beliefs, these things we've been taught, these convictions we have about how Dr. King solved it all and everything is fine. We have to hold those with a little more humility and a lot less conviction. We must interrogate them and be willing to have others prove them wrong because when we dig in on those beliefs, when we defend them, when we defend ourselves as though accusations against a system of oppression are personal accusations against us, all we're really doing is perpetuating a culture that cannot admit mistakes and does not care to seek after the truth. We need humility. We need it if we are going to actually be allies in the fight for racial justice. Because humility is the very thing that allows us to change, and we need to change. This is hard, though. I get that. It's hard to hear and to accept the violent and oppressive history of our nation, and even harder still to recognize that many of us benefit from the continuing privileges it confers on people with white skin. What makes it so hard, I think, is our sense of individuality so deeply embedded in the American psyche. I wasn't alive during slavery. I'm not racist. I grew up with struggles. There are a hundred different ways that we want to deflect the realities of our collective history and of our systems broken by inherent bias. Humility is the piece that allows us to say, I'm an individual, yes, and I can make good choices about how to be and treat people, but I am small, a very small piece of a much larger machine. I am an individual, yes, who can impact my own future, but I am also the product of generations. Humility allows us to step back and hear we live in a white supremacist culture, not as all white people are racist, but as all of us live in a system that favors white skin and some of us benefit from it in vast ways and all of us suffer from being a part of it. Humility lets us, as Resnick writes, get ever closer to the truth. And the truth is something we Unitarian Universalists purport to seek. King asked this of us, especially of white liberals. If you've ever read Letter from a Birmingham Jail, if you haven't, please do. He asks us to have conviction around equality and also humility around our deeply embedded and often not interrogated desire not to actually change. And the thing is, humility allows us, hopefully, to step back enough and let go of ego enough to see that the issue of racism and prejudice is also part of a much larger complex of issues in our country. And it's that complex of issues that King spoke about in that speech and in other moments of deep truth-telling. It's when he spoke about a true revolution. The true revolution, the true liberation process that he noted decades ago extends all through American culture. He said, I am convinced that if we are to get on the right side of the world revolution, we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. We must rapidly begin the shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. When machines and computers, profit motives, and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism, and militarism are incapable of being conquered. He called for humility not just around anti-racist work, but humility when acknowledging all of our American inheritances that triple sin of materialism, racism, and militarism. 
He called for us to be able to look honestly at the motives for these cultural modes and to be able to say aloud to ourselves and each other that these are not the values we want to stand for. These are not the values embodied in the best of the American dream. These are not the values of the America that never yet has been, but are the values of the one that Langston Hughes writes of and that Dr. Kim dreamed of and that we claim we want to build. Here again, I quote from Dr. King's speech on Vietnam. A true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our past and present policies. On the one hand, we are called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside, but that will be only an initial act. One day we must come to see that the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that people will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. A true revolution of values will soon look uneasily on the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth. He goes on, America, the richest and most powerful nation in the world, can well lead the way in this revolution of values. There is nothing except a tragic death wish to prevent us from reordering our priorities so that the pursuit of peace will take precedence over the pursuit of war. There is nothing to keep us from molding a recalcitrant status quo with bruised hands until we have fashioned it into a brotherhood. Our only hope today, King said, lies in our ability to recapture the revolutionary spirit and go out into a sometimes hostile world, declaring eternal hostility to poverty, racism, and militarism. With this powerful commitment, we shall boldly challenge the status quo and unjust mores, and thereby speed the day when every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. He goes on. A genuine revolution of values means in the final analysis that our loyalties must become ecumenical rather than sectional. Every nation must now develop an overriding loyalty to humankind as a whole in order to preserve the best in their individual societies. And this call for a worldwide fellowship that lifts neighborly concern beyond one's tribe, race, class, and nation is in reality a call for an all-embracing and unconditional love for all humankind. This oft-misunderstood, this oft-misinterpreted concept so readily dismissed by the Nietzsche's of the world as a weak and cowardly force, has now become an absolute necessity for the survival of man. When I speak of love, I am not speaking of some sentimental and weak response. I'm not speaking of that force which is just emotional bosh. I am speaking of that force which all of the great religions have seen as the supreme unifying principle of life. He was a preacher. The kind of love that King calls for, the kind of faith that he had, the kind of convictions that we need are ones laced through with humility. Humble love says, I will love the world and others fiercely, even knowing that love might not be returned. Humble faith says, I am a small piece of a larger puzzle, but my piece matters deeply and I will do what I can to make the road straight. Humble convictions say, my beliefs are strong enough to hold doubt and fear and questions, and they are also strong enough to change when a deeper truth becomes known. 
May we find ways, today and every day, to embody more fully the humility we need to seek and the humility we need to change the world. So may it be. Please remain standing and join in the words for extinguishing the chalice. They're printed in your order of service and also above. We extinguish this flame. hearts until we are together again. May your mind stay open to new thoughts and ideas. May your spirit stay open to the changes life might bring. May your heart stay open to all your fellow travelers in life, and may you stay humble. Go in peace.